in the blue corner, what it lacks in capacity it makes up for with sheer enthusiasm. Slightly underweight, of course, but prepared to punch really, really hard. The inline three-cylinder engine, the contender, up against, in the red corner, a naked pumping powerhouse, the champion. The engine we know and love as the inline four. Let's get ready to rumble. I'm John Cadogan from autoexpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap for buyers here in Australia. Hit me up on the website for that. Question today from a dude named Stuart. A little concerned, I'd have to say, about the proliferation, seemingly, of three-cylinder engines. Will they suddenly make their move and displace the champ, the four-cylinder? Stuart says, I have noticed three-cylinder becoming all the rage in the small car market. Is this a cost-cutting idea by the car manufacturers? Interesting question, Stu. And up front, I would have to say that they're not all the rage, okay? There's just a few more three-cylinders today than there was previously. And I know that, you know, if you bought a three-cylinder car previously, you might have actually been well behind the eight ball. But I'd have to say not so much today. So I did a little bit of research on this so I'd have a more complete picture, a story to tell you that fills in all the gaps between three cylinders of yesteryear, back when, you know, before Twitter and after the dinosaurs, and the three cylinder of today. And where does it stand in relation to four cylinders? Is there an advantage with three cylinders? Let's find out. For starters, though, and I've made a few notes here, you'll see me looking to the side, sorry about that, you know, in my dotage, I do find it hard to keep all the data, you know, up here somewhere. Anyway, is it cost-cutting? Well, there's two ways to look at cost-cutting, and I'd suggest that one of the things that's missing from all modern discourse, okay, is this assumption of bilateral good faith, which obviously there is in many cases. And I'd suggest that cost-cutting by manufacturers seems to be sort of this negative implication. But what that actually means is if manufacturers cut costs, they pass those savings on to you. And they're forced to do that because they operate in a competitive environment. So if you can figure out, if you're a car maker, how to cut the cost of X or Y, whatever widget, there's like five or 10,000 parts in a modern car and it depends how you define part. But if you can cut that cost, then you have a competitive edge against your competitors, provided you pass that saving on to the punter. And that's how this works. The car industry is intensely competitive. So cost cutting is without reservation, a positive thing because those savings actually end up in your back pocket at the end of the day in the same way that they don't if costs rise. You know, if manufacturers have to bear any cost out there somewhere, then ultimately the consumer has to pay because that's just how this works, mate. So why would you manufacture four cylinders when three is going to do the job? That's the bottom line, okay? And all of these expensive technologies that have been developed, like things like uh, direct injection and turbocharging, variable valve timing, all of that stuff, it's very expensive to develop. But what it does is it increases the thermal efficiency of engines and it allows you to do 
more with less capacity. And ultimately, if you go far enough down this road of doing more with less, you end up with somebody tapping you on the shoulder in R&D and saying, hey, do we really need all four cylinders to do this? Or can we not just do the same job with three? Because if you can do the job with three, then you've got a whole lot less manufacturing to do, haven't you? You've got fewer lobes to machine on camshafts and fewer bearings to build and insert and machine, simpler crankshafts. All of this stuff just gets easier. And not only that, the engine gets lighter, therefore fuel economy improves and you can package it up in a smaller engine bay. And all of this stuff is a direct benefit, not only to you as an individual, but collectively to the planet, if you like, because each car produced in that manner consumes fewer resources. And that's got to be a positive thing, right? So I'd suggest that what manufacturers do is they start with these targets, you know, they go, well, we want to build a car and it's got to be about that big and we want it to perform like this and we need about this fuel economy to be competitive and we need to meet these uh, emissions targets okay and when you do all of that stuff and you get it down on paper that's what they start to do with the granular detail they then start to ask themselves well how big an engine do we need? How many cylinders does it have to have? What technology will we add? What do we already have in our inventory that we can lunch off because we don't want to invent the wheel from scratch? We want to start with, you know, the pegs that we've already got in the ground to reduce overall development costs and they go from there. Upcoming Toyota Yaris, Yaris Cross, Volkswagen Polo, etc., are all using three-cylinder motors. Are consumers better off with a three-cylinders over four cylinders. Okay, so this is the bit of the chat where we have to talk about the technical differences between inline fours, which are common, and inline threes, which are the contender, notionally, all right? I'm not talking about horizontally opposed fours where the pistons move like this, like a boxer, hence the name. That's Subaru's thing and they do it reasonably well. There's some advantages with that, like lower center of mass because the operation's down here as opposed to up here, as it is in most inline fours. Right. Inline fours happen a couple of different ways. You can have the pistons moving vertically, but you can also tip the engine over like this and move the pistons in this sort of plane. And they're called slant fours when you do that. I can't think of a slant four currently in production, though, in cars at least. So they're really all inline fours with the pistons moving vertically. And the cool thing about a four-cylinder engine is that the pistons move in pairs. Number one and number four are moving up, while number two and number three in the middle are moving down, and vice versa. And this means that the engine is in sort of perfect primary balance, which you might think is awesome. But really, there's a flaw in the design, or at least a characteristic of the operation that needs to be compensated for in R&D. And... It happens because of the, the crank geometry, you know, from the main bearing cap to the big end sort of center line, the crank throw, the rotation of the crank, and also the conrod length. What that does is it means that, and this is pretty hard to bend your brain around, but have a crack, see how you go. What it means is that when the pistons are moving up, okay, they're, in, they're accelerating at a different rate than when they're moving down. I should say when they're above the center line of their movement, okay? When the crank is horizontal and goes up like this to top dead center and over to halfway again, they're accelerating faster than they would be 
doing a corresponding motion below. And that's just got to do with the geometry of the rod and the crank throw, okay? There's nothing that can be done about that. And obviously the forces that that imposes on the operation of the engine are unbalanced. So in what's called secondary balance, the four-cylinder is poor. And if you've got small reciprocating masses and small displacements and therefore small geometry, those forces are small. Okay, but as you increase the size of a four-cylinder engine, those forces get bigger and they're rotating at twice the crankshaft rate. And that's why bigger four-cylinder engines, typically bigger than two litres, two and a half litres like that, they need balance shafts to compensate for that. And the balance shafts rotate twice as fast as the crank and their purpose is to impose opposite forces to the intrinsic imbalance of that engine. Okay, so that's kind of the main design deficiency of the four-cylinder engine, which prevents it from being scaled right up. You know, you don't get 16-litre four-cylinder engines in trucks. It just doesn't happen, okay, because it's too hard to compensate for those uh, out-of-balance forces. And it's also inefficient to make cylinders that big. We'll get to that. Three cylinders, though, they have their crank pins at 120 degrees. So interestingly enough, they have perfect primary and secondary balance, okay? So that's a distinct advantage over a four-cylinder engine. However, <laughs> there's another problem. And it's, let's imagine this is a crankshaft, okay? And it's rotating and it's got three crank pins and they're at 120 degrees and you've got three cylinders coming up here, all right? What happens is because the combustion events are not symmetrical like they are in a four-cylinder engine or the motion of the piston's not symmetrical, they haven't got two coming up here and two going down here, you've got these out of balance, they're rotating like this. So it causes the engine to rock this way, this longitudinal rocking of the engine because you've got you know masses moving here and masses moving here and they're just not balanced. So there's that. Perfect primary and secondary balance, but, you know, this rocking thing is really the design defect or, you know, the operational characteristic that's undesirable with three-cylinder engines. Interestingly there, though, an inline six, which is just in many ways the perfect engine, okay, in many ways, because it's two inline threes, mirror-reversed and stuck together with a contiguous crankshaft, okay? And when you do that, you basically eliminate those longitudinal rocking couples because they're compensated for equal and opposite. You know, the front half of the engine compensates for the back half of the engine and the rocking goes away. And what this means is you can rev those engines really well, which is anyone who's ever driven a BMW M3 from the 1990s <laughs> with that awesome, I think it was three litre straight six, that's that. Okay, And the other thing is you can scale those engines up because they have essentially no big out-of-balance rotating problems that need to be compensated for. So that's friggin' awesome. Three cylinders are almost there except for the rocking, which needs to be 
kind of fixed and you can do that with a shaft too i think i'm not sure exactly how they do that or whether it's even necessary in engines as small as one and a half liters or 1.2 or something like that they might be able to get away with uh, vibration isolating that using the right engine mounts and hey if they can get away with that it's much better than engineering in another shaft that's got to rock the other way inside the engine and i suspect they probably do that if they can or is this a cheat by the car manufacturers to get past strict CO2 emissions. Okay, so here I'd suggest we don't actually have those, dude. Nobody does because CO2 is intrinsic to the combustion process, okay? It can't be circumvented by clever engineering. It just can't. You know, you can't have an emission standard that says you will reduce CO2 to X or Y or whatever. You can't do that, okay? Because when you burn x kilos of carbon-based fuel you get y kilos of co2 okay you just do an x to y is locked in a strict sort of mathematical proportion particularly per fuel x kilos of petrol gasoline America, is y kilos of co2 and x kilos of diesel is y kilos of co2 and y is going to be a slightly different number but only slightly because of the slight difference in proportionality of the carbon and hydrogen in the different hydrocarbon fuels anywho this is a long-winded way of saying you can't just introduce legislation that says you will do x because not possible chemistry doesn't work that way what we in fact do is in other markets around the world like america they have corporate average fuel economy standards. So governments go out and they say to car makers, you will limit your fuel economy of your fleet to a number, all right? And fuel economy equals CO2 because of the relationship between fuel and CO2 and the strict numeric proportionality between them. Here in Australia, we don't have a government that is enlightened enough to do that, to impose corporate average fuel economy or CO2 targets on manufacturers because, you know, politicians are generally lawyers and lawyers don't understand science. At PS, they're often also assholes. So there's that. What we in fact do by uh, virtue of emission standards is we limit a few things. We limit unburned hydrocarbons. We limit carbon monoxide, a deadly poison that happens as a result of imperfect combustion. And we also limit oxides of nitrogen, which is a feature of running engines too lean. All right. And we typically do them in the catalytic converter. We just treat those byproducts, if you like, in a catalytic converter, which is an example of cleverly subverting a problem with imperfect combustion using technology. Unfortunately, though, you can't just do that with CO2 because CO2 is the best way we can manage combustion. If combustion is complete, you burn gasoline or diesel, you get carbon dioxide and water because that's how combustion rolls. I should also add here that the only hack for CO2 that can be done by virtue of technology is hybrid. All right, because hybrid is a way of reducing the consumption of gasoline or diesel, whatever, because you can use some of the energy that you have acquired, some of the kinetic energy, you can recoup that by virtue of regenerative braking and use it to get going again. And of course, 
you save 100% of the fuel you would have used to produce that energy in the future, right? And therefore, you save 100% of the CO2 that would have been produced by burning it. So really, the only hack for CO2 is to consume less fuel. And I mean, you could do that with your own car. You don't have to go out and buy a hybrid. You could just drive more gently, okay? If you do that, you could save... 25% on your fuel bill and thus emit 25% less CO2 out there as you drive. And the other thing you could do is just use your car more efficiently. And here's a, a basic example of that, all right? If you've got to go from your home over here, okay, maybe you've got to drop somebody, your daughter or your son or something, at school, all right? That might be three kilometres. And then later on in the day, you decide to go shopping for dinner, Okay, so you might go over here shopping for dinner from home, three kilometers to the shops. And the distance from school to the shops is like, I don't know, three kilometers. Let's keep all of that just simple. Okay, you could go school and back, home, do whatever, and then shopping and back. Okay, three, six, nine, twelve, right? Kilometers. Or you could go school, shops, home. Yeah, three, six, nine. So you've just used your car 25% more efficiently and emitted 25% less CO2 by virtue of saving 100% of the fuel you would have used driving the three kilometres that you didn't just drive. I was looking at the upcoming Toyota Yaris Cross, but it is a 1.5-litre three-cylinder. That doesn't excite me, as I feel I'm losing power and the car will be revving hard on highway speeds. What's your thoughts on this upcoming trend? Well, my overarching thought is... Do try harder to punctuate, dude, and also use spell checker because... First impressions count, don't they? And how to loose a job interview, that would be basically the blueprint in my view. Apostrophes too, you know? So complex. I think you'd agree, right? Anyway, if you're in the market for excitement, automotive excitement, and you are shopping at House of Yaris, then I'd suggest you are in entirely the wrong frigging boutique. So there's that. I mean, they do try to make all cars seem exciting and the styling tries to make them exciting. But Toyota is the king of mediocrity and Yaris and Yaris Cross, they've got the passion and soul, you know, beneath the skin, scratch the skin and look inside and they've got the passion and soul of a friggin' tumble dryer. Come on. If you're looking for excitement, you're in the wrong place, in other words. So... I'd suggest further that it doesn't matter how many cylinders a car has, what matters is how it goes, okay? Does it meet your performance, economy, whatever, expectations? And you could ballpark it like this. If you've got 70 or 80 watts per kilo or kilowatts per tonne of uh, power-to-weight ratio, then performance is going to be acceptable to most people. And if you've got 100, then... That is a properly interesting car to drive in a straight line. And if you've got, you know, 120, 130, like, ladies and gentlemen, I'll be there soon. Okay? They're awesome. But you have to be wired for that kind of thing. And also, you have to be prepared to pay for the fuel because nothing's free. So 
what you've really got to talk about there is does the car perform to your expectations, not how many friggin' cylinders does it have, okay? And people do this all the time. They say drum brakes in utes are shit. And they're really not. It depends how they're executed. It's like leaf springs are shit or, you know, multi-link rear ends are shit or whatever. It, like... They're not necessarily. It depends how the execution is accomplished in detail. And what the acid test is, how does a car go? Not what is its parts, because the whole can be greater or less than the sum of the perception of the viability of the parts, right? It's like, it could be Gestalt theory or anti-Gestalt theory, and it depends how well the dudes in R&D did their friggin' jobs, all right? Now... You've also got to get, you know, for a car like a Yaris Cross, you want to have an engine that doesn't need its tits revved off to get to that maximum power, and you'd want reasonable mid-range torque because you want the engine to perform okay when it's not at its maximum output. You'd want it to perform okay at two, three thousand rpm something like that the pro tip here with yaris cross is that it uses the atkinson cycle as well and toyota has already pumped up that uh communications right they say thermal efficiency 40 percent, which is greater than a diesel and you got to listen for what they're not saying what they're not saying is that yeah and power output is quite limited because of the atkinson cycle the Atkinson cycle is a thermodynamics hack, okay? What you do is you have an induction stroke that continues beyond bottom dead center, okay? And as the piston starts to rise for compression, the inlet valve stays open briefly. And what that does is it pumps some of the mixture back out into the inlet manifold, right? And you might think, why? Well, that's because... When the valve closes and the piston's up here a little bit and then it continues and completes its compression stroke, then the spark plug fires and then you get the expansion or power stroke. The ratio of the compression to the expansion is tweaked, right? You get greater expansion relative to the amount of compression and that gives rise to greater thermal efficiency. But what you're actually doing with the Atkinson cycle is also limiting the amount of air that the engine can drink per uh, stroke, and that limits its power production because air equals the amount of fuel you can burn, and if you limit the amount of air coming in, you limit the amount of fuel you can burn. So Yaris Cross is going to be tweaked for economy, not performance. So if you want excitement, definitely shopping in the wrong spot. And furthermore, I'd suggest that uh, there's the hybrid thing with the Yaris, okay? So Yaris Cross is going to be, I think, 1.5 litre three-cylinder hybrid. So the hybrid is going to give you performance off the mark subject to the condition of the battery and also improve the fuel economy somewhat when you're just in stop-start traffic, traffic and traffic, which is hybrid's big trick. And the second pro tip I would add here to conclude this little analysis of Yaris Cross is wait until it's released in Australia because all of the communication I've read about Yaris Cross is designed for Europe, okay? And in Europe, the minimum fuel spec is 95 RON, which is our entry-level premium unleaded. We have 91 and E10 as our base model fuel. We have 95 as the first tier of premium unleaded, and then we have 98 as the top tier of premium unleaded. Okay, so 
if they don't spend the big bucks and tweak the powertrain, tune the engine, if you like, for 91 Ron fuel here in Australia, you're going to be buying this fairly unexciting but edgy looking SUV and you'll be buying it for fuel economy or many people will buy it for fuel economy and in the fine print you know they buy the car they sign on the dotted line they drive off into the sunset they go yes fuel economy and the first time they need to refuel it they open the fuel flap and it says premium unleaded only so you'll be paying more at the pump every time just to save a few bucks on fuel don't get caught by that little trap. 